This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 360. Big thanks to the Richmond Marathon in Virginia for sponsoring this episode. Run through Virginia's capital on November 13th. They offer a full marathon, half, and an 8K. Sign up at richmondmarathon.org and beat the September 16th price increase. That's richmondmarathon.org. Get ready to run the Richmond Marathon. Thanks to Bioactive Nutrients for sponsoring this episode. They sell a device that will remove pollen, mold, smoke, pet dander, and other airborne particles from the air that can trigger allergies and create dangerous breathing conditions. It's called the Pioneer SmartPoint Air Treatment System. Just go to bioactivenutrients.com MTA and save up to $100 with code MTA. That's bioactivenutrients.com MTA. <laughs> Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower and inspire you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Melissa Corley Carter, a rocket scientist who will share a story about running a marathon on every continent. And in this episode's quick tips segment, we feature a listener question about intermittent fasting for runners. Lots of good stuff. And don't forget, as an Academy member, you can get access to all of the premium content training plans, courses, and more inside our members area. Go to MarathonTrainingAcademy.com to learn more. So over the weekend, the Leadville Trail 100 Ultra Marathon here in the U.S. Uh, in Colorado, one of, the, one of the big ones, took place. And it was exciting because one of the previous winners who's kind of been inactive, I guess, for a while in the uh, ultra world has come back, uh, Anton Kaprichka. He was featured in the movie Unbreakable, and he won Leadville in 06 and 07. So he actually came back and competed this year. So Angie, how did it go? Yeah, that's right. There were 678 runners, according to I Run Far, and there's a 30-hour cutoff for this very tough race that climbs around 8,000 feet on an out-and-back course through the Rocky Mountains, of course. Uh, the first place man was Adrian McDonald. It was his first 100-miler. And interestingly enough, he only did his first 50-miler earlier this year. So he's just kind of dipping his toe into the ultra world and doing very, very well. He was a collegiate runner and has placed well in, in marathons and things like that. But he finished in 16 hours, 18 minutes, and 19 seconds, more than 40 minutes ahead of the next competitor, who was Matt Flaherty. He finished in 16 hours, 59 minutes, and 38 seconds. It was also his first 100-mile finish, so they did very well. And like Trevor was talking about Anton, he was third place in 17 hours, 7 minutes, and 55 seconds. And he was back after a five-year break from competing. And then Ian Sharman was fourth place in 17 hours, 46 minutes, 31 seconds. He is a four-time Leadville Trail 100 winner. And a two-time podcast guest. That's right. <laughs> on the MTA podcast. It's been a while since we've talked to Ian Sharman. Yeah. What's funny about um, Anton Kamprichka is there's lots of uh, memes comparing him to Jesus because... He kind of looks like Jesus, I guess, with the long hair and stuff, <laughs> and uh, seems like a very Zen guy, uh, spends a lot of time out in nature, and I think, in fact, if you Google running trail Jesus, like, his picture comes up. Oh, man. <laughs> not by design, you know, not something that he's promoting, but there's this uh, Instagram account that we follow called Ultra Running Memes, and they were really playing that up, and... Uh, the build up to the Leadville Trail Ultra, every day they were posting another meme about the, the prophecy of Anton's return. <laughs> <laughs> and 
One of them has Jesus holding a running shoe, and it says, those who doubted my return are doomed to DNF for all eternity. <laughs> Anton. <laughs> <laughs> then they have a picture of like Jesus reclining, like looking up into the sky, and it says, on the Sunday before Leadville, Anton began his taper, and it was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really funny. Um, definitely a great Instagram account to follow if you enjoy trail running and humor. So what about the women's finish? First place was Annie Hughes. She is 23 years old, and she finished in 21 hours, 6 minutes, and 58 seconds. She had a nearly one-hour lead over the second-place woman, Wow! who was Genevieve Harrison. She came in in 22 hours, 6 minutes, and 59 seconds. And apparently she came from behind in the very, very later miles of the race. Third place was Blake Wageman in 22 hours, 25 minutes, and 20 seconds. This was her first 100-miler. So pretty amazing way to break into the 100-mile world. And fourth place was Michelle Kent in 23 hours, 10 minutes, and 20 seconds. And speaking of ultra marathons, there was an interesting news article that someone shared in our, our group for members about the most expensive race in the world. What's that about? <laughs> well, I thought this kind of went well with our episode since we're going to be talking about running on all the continents. And yeah, this was a news piece by BBC News Scotland. And it says ultramarathon competitors are used to roughing it in races, sometimes sleeping in bivy bags, the side of muddy trails, or even running through several nights. They set themselves incredible long distance challenges, often running through remote and difficult terrain. But now a new ultramarathon race is being launched, which gives them luxury few could afford including butlers, hydrotherapy pools, speedboats, and Michelin star chefs. You don't even need to run. <laughs> yes, I think you probably do, but it's called the Highland Kings Ultra. It's a four-day camping race that covers 120 miles on the west coast of Scotland, and it costs 15,499 pounds, or in U.S. dollars, that would be like a little over $21,000 per person to enter. So wow. like everyone go and sign up now, right? Because we all have that much money laying around. <laughs> the organizers of the Highland Kings Ultra are calling it, quote, the most exclusive luxury ultra run experience on the planet. There's a market for everything. Yeah, the race director told BBC, the idea was for the runners to race like warriors, but recover like a king. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the only running race known to BBC Scotland, which costs more than the Highland Kings Ultra, is the World Marathon Challenge. Of course, that's when you run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. So entry for that is between 39 to 42,000 euros or 47 to $49,000. And that includes accommodation and business flights between each country. The guest on this episode took more time and enjoyed the journey a little more. Probably did it a way more cost-effective way. But we did ask her during the interview, you know, she remembered what her Antarctica marathon costs. And this was, you know, a few years ago that she completed it. But apparently now if you do the last desert race in Antarctica, it's an 11-day trip. It includes a boat from Argentina and it costs $12,900 or just over 9,000 pounds. If you don't really want to go to Antarctica, you want something warmer, there's the Marathon de Sable. It's a seven-day race across the Sahara Desert where runners carry all their equipment for 155 miles or 250 kilometers, and it costs 3,270 euros or about $3,800 to enter. So glad running is still an inexpensive sport. <laughs> that, is, that is the age-old uh, joke, I guess. <laughs> 
So maybe that will make your next race sign up seem a little bit more cost effective. There you go. Just, you know, run the numbers. That's how you can justify it. Yeah. When you're paying that $175 marathon registration, I think, well, could be worse. That's right. And you probably get a free t-shirt. <laughs> So before we jump into our interview today, let's uh, give some props to folks in the community taking action in their goals. We'd like to say congratulations to Morgan. She is a client of MTA Coach Henry, and Coach Henry posted in our members group. He says, I began working with Morgan last October, and at the time she had completed one marathon, but had a big dream, run the Trans Rockies stage race. It's a six-day stage race at elevations between 7,400 and 12,600 feet above sea level that covers 120 miles and 20,000 feet of elevation gain. Morgan absolutely crushed her training as she battled through brutal heat, flooded trails, and various niggles and injuries. She epitomized what I ask of my runners, be consistent and dream big. And he says, congratulations, Morgan. I'm so proud of your epic achievement. Wow, that is epic. That sounds like an amazing race. Um, It's called Run the Trans Rockies Stage Race. Congrats on the training and on going the distance, Morgan. That's right. And we got this nice email from Eric from Michigan. He says, Hi, Angie and Trevor. After all these years, it's so cool to see you guys still podcasting. I started listening to you in my freshman year of college, 2010 to 2011, and you helped motivate and educate me towards running my first marathon on January 1st, 2012. It was so fun that I followed it up four months later with a trail marathon. Totally brutal, but worth it. Fast forward 10 years, I've had ups, downs, and hiatuses in my running. I've worked at specialty run stores, led workshops and group runs, and learned much, much more along the way. All that said, I feel like I've cultivated a lifelong passion for running that is here to stay, and I want to say thank you for being the fertilizer that helped the seed grow. This morning, I listened to the episode on how to make a comeback, and you kept the same intro music. Yes. <laughs> uh, fond memories from my first long runs. I guess I have some episodes to catch up on. See you out there. Yeah, it was awesome to get that email. So so cool that he listened to us uh, kind of at the beginning when we started podcasting 2010 and how we helped him run his first marathon. And then, uh, you know, 10 years later... Sounds like a lot has transpired and he kind of came back to listen to the podcast again recently and he's like, hey, same familiar voices, (laughs) same familiar theme song. (laughs) I actually checked our numbers uh, a couple days ago. We've Since we started in 2010, the podcast has been downloaded 10.8 million times. Wow. So big thanks to all of our amazing listeners. New listeners, people who've been with us the whole time. We really appreciate you guys. And the email does kind of make us feel old a little bit. (laughs) Someday people will be writing us, I grew up listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you'll be inspired by today's guest. She's a very fascinating person. Her name is Melissa Corley Carter. She's an Air Force officer turned writer and leadership coach. She has a PhD in rocket science. She has two engineering degrees from Stanford, an MBA from the University of New Mexico, and she earned an astronautical engineering PhD from the Naval Postgraduate School. Her publisher got in contact with us because she produced a coffee table book about running a marathon on all seven continents. The book is called Running the World. So all seven continents, she's going to walk us through. But also, how does rocket science relate to marathon training in life? So a lot of interesting stories and thoughts from Melissa Corley Carter. Let's go and jump into our interview right now. Well on my way. Okay, we're on the podcast now with Melissa Corley Carter. 
She's not only a rocket scientist, but she has run a marathon on every continent on planet Earth. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Trevor. How are you doing? Excellent. So let's go back to the beginning. We love to ask people how they got started running marathons. So what got you started doing this? Well, you know, so I started running period because I was in Air Force ROTC uh, and, you know, military fitness tests will make you run. Um, So I was running, I was running in ROTC and then I ran in my first assignment uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I actually had some friends who were runners and one in particular who was pretty good at distance running. And she took me out for longer and longer distances. And, you know, after my first eight mile run, you know, I was all wobbly going downstairs. (laughs) But I was getting getting better at running longer. and, And then I was telling my mom, about this uh, over a Labor Day weekend, we were actually in Carmel, California, and she said, "You know, there's a there's a marathon in Big Sur, uh, which is right in that area, and a, an area that I've always loved." And so, and the, and the marathon was in April, and it was September, and I was like, "I could train for a marathon by April." <laughs> so it really just kind of started as, "Wow, what a way to run on the Pacific Coast Highway in a beautiful part of the world." So I trained for it, and I went there. <laughs> That's how I got into marathoning. Well, that marathon, I mean, like you said, it's incredibly beautiful, but it's not an easy course. I mean, that thing is so hilly. Did you know that going into it? I did know it was going to be really hilly, yes. (laughs) It didn't really occur to me that maybe that was not the one to start with, you know, because maybe that was a little harder than other ones, but it was just the opportune one. So it was all I knew, really. (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned you were ROTC. How was your career unfolding around this time as well? Well, I was actually in my very first Air Force assignment when I ran that first marathon. I was uh, on the cusp of going on to my next one. So uh, it was unfolding in that I was working at the Air Force Research Lab. So I was doing the science thing. And and actually, I had always wanted to be an astronaut. So since fifth grade, an astronaut came and talked to my class. And ever since then, I had wanted to do that. And I was a kid who didn't grow out of it. You know, a lot of kids want to be astronauts and then, you know, come up with something else. But uh, but I was <laughs> still going for it. So... <laughs> Um, Then actually a few months after that first marathon, I uh, was uh, stationed in Monterey, California. So actually in the same area, and I ended up running the marathon again the following year because I got to train on the course. Uh, But I was at the Naval Postgraduate School getting my PhD in astronautical engineering. So that's kind of where the the rocket science thing continued to unfold. And uh, that's kind of where I was there. But but actually in in getting to train on the course and just improve all around, I, I actually cut an hour off my time. But the second time I ran the Big Sur. So that was pretty exciting too. So I know a lot about marathon training. I don't know anything about rocket science (laughs) (laughs) or becoming an astronaut. What is the process involved if somebody wants to become an astronaut? How much education and how many years does it take to achieve that goal usually? Well, you know, that's that's a good question. It's pretty variable. So and all the astronauts will tell you there's no one course to get there. You know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who want to be astronauts. And, and, you know, they pick maybe, you know, eight in a class, which doesn't happen every year either. So, uh, so there's uh, a plethora of people who want to do it. Uh, And so, you know, you have to have a science or engineering grad or uh, sorry, undergrad degree. Uh, And then from there, it could be anything, you know, doctors or uh, engineers, scientists, biologists, you know, there's there's all kinds of different people who end up uh, getting in the program, but but there's no guaranteed method for success. Um, and I'll say, actually, I had always had bad eyesight. And so I knew it was a disqualifying factor, but I was always counting on the fact that they'd start taking corrective surgery. And they did. So I went out and got, got LASIK. And 
what ended up happening was I applied in 2012. That was the year I finished my my seven continents, actually. So kind of went through the whole process there. But I applied. And in fact, my eyesight before I got LASIK was so bad that I was disqualified anyway. Mm. So um, so there's that, too. <laughs> you have to be physically qualified as well. But uh, but yeah, so there was a huge process of recovery after that it turned out to be, a, of course, a beautiful thing. And I love where I am now. So no complaints here. I wanted to kind of get into that later and go in chronological order. But since we're on the topic already, let's let's talk about the recovery. Uh, what, what do you mean there was a huge process of recovery? Well, you know, kind of instantaneously right after I found out it was it kind of felt like the end of the world, you mm. know, because um, you've been working on this for how many years? 20. So wow. for 20 years, I was sure that I was going to become an astronaut, you know? Mm. Um, so I realized this is a first world problem, you know, not becoming an astronaut. But uh, but for me, it really did feel like the end of the world because uh, I had, uh, that's what I had been working for and dreaming of. And and what I, what I realized in retrospect is that I had such an identity crisis because I had just really wrapped all of my identity into this future astronauthood and told everyone I'd ever met that I was going to be, you know, wanted to be an astronaut. And I didn't have a backup plan. So I, I didn't really know what to do. And I didn't know who I would be if I if I wasn't an astronaut. So that was kind of the in the moment. Yeah. So do you think since you had been in this process of taking on a huge goal, like running a marathon on all seven continents, do you think that kind of helped prepare you for the resilience that you would need to bounce back after that career disappointment? I think so. I think so. And, and even if I didn't realize it at the time, I think it's telling that both of those adventures, as it were, ended in the same year. Um, you know, I still actually had two marathons left. I ran two, two of the, the last two marathons that year, one about a month after I found out uh, about the astronaut thing, and then one about six months later. So I think resilience is one of my favorite topics in the world. And I do think that whether I knew it or not, the marathon journey absolutely prepared me for life as a whole. And as I look back, as I was writing this book, as I, as I look back, I realized that the marathons really paralleled my life journey, even esoterically, not just sort of literally, but, but figuratively as well. So there were definitely some parallels and leaning on the lessons learned from, from all areas of life. What was your PhD dissertation? <laughs> it, actually, it sounds surprisingly simple. It was maritime adaptive optics beam control. So that does not sound simple. <laughs> <laughs> Light reading. <laughs> yes, if you haven't saw me, you might give it a try. <laughs> what, so just tell us, what is that about? Um, so it, it actually is about adaptive optics, which is uh, actually what I had been working on in my first assignment as well, which is a way of correcting for atmospheric turbulence so that you can um, basically see through it. So, for instance, uh, if you're using a telescope and trying to image something in space, adaptive optics, they, they like to say it takes the twinkle out of the stars. So you could actually take pictures of things in space that uh, are as good as if you had been taking them from space. Um, but because, you know, the atmosphere gets in the way of, of imaging or, you know, laser propagation or things like that. And I was in the Naval Postgraduate School. So the, with the maritime application, it was sort of like looking through horizontal turbulence, um, which is actually harder than looking up because the thickest part of the atmosphere is here at the surface. And so if you're looking up, you know, once you get through the first part, that thickness, you're you're good to go. But if you're looking through the thickness the whole way, um, it's more complicated. So um, that's that's what it was about. Okay, so I've got this question and you're probably the only person we've had in the podcast qualified to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Finishing a marathon, getting to the end. It's not rocket science, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is. 
so so I tell you what, I this is my rocket science philosophy. And and you said you didn't know any rocket science. You're about to learn some, and, and you'll learn as much as you need to know. Uh, rocket science really is about three things. It's about going from where you are to where you want to be. It's about acknowledging progress and adjusting course. And it's about letting go to lift off. Hmm. So that's really the essence. And I find that that applies to running, to life as a whole, to resilience, to everything. Because, you know, certainly in a marathon itself, there's where you are and there's where you want to be. And that's the finish line. But there's also a being okay with being where you are in the moment. You know, like you don't necessarily want the finish line to come immediately because you want to have the experience of running the marathon. It's not like you're just trying to get to the finish. You actually want to savor the moment and, and enjoy the experience. So I think that's a really big part of it. And and just in life in general, if we're so focused on the goal that we miss our lives while we're waiting for the next thing that's going to make us happy, we miss the fact that happiness is right here. So, um, like so there's that piece. Yeah. So then the other two pieces, yeah. Acknowledging progress, adjusting course. Um, you know, you want to celebrate your wins. You don't wait till the finish line to start celebrating like, yeah, yeah, just passed the first mile. Yeah. Yeah. Just passed, you know, the halfway point celebrating along the way is really motivating to help you keep going. Uh, and then if you're not feeling good, you know, adjusting course, you know, okay, I, I might do walk a little bit longer on this stretch and, and allowing yourself to adjust to, to the actual circumstances at hand. Um, and then letting go to lift off again, big one, you know, rocket science, you know, you got to dump a lot of fuel to, to go up to lift off the ground. And then actually, the more you let go, the faster you go, because there's less mass. So anyway, in life and in running, what I see that as letting go of attachment to outcome, outcome. So uh, time goals, not important. Um, how, yeah, how fast you do it isn't really important. What's important is, are you enjoying the journey? And are you willing to, you know, make it through the hard points to get to the end and letting go of all that, um, the stories in your head, or I'm a bad runner, or that person just passed me, I must suck, you know, like those kind of stories are, are not helpful. So, yeah. so how do you just do you and enjoy the run um, and let go of all that other stuff that gets in the way? That's good stuff. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> it wasn't quite the uh, uh, answer that I think you were expecting, that's but it was better. <laughs> better than I was expecting. I was just trying to make a joke, but that's awesome. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. We'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Bioactive Nutrients. They sell this device that is an air filter, but it's more than that. It's actually one of those ion air filters that clean the air using this new technology. It'll zap any pollen, mold, smoke, pet dander, any kind of airborne particles in the air that can trigger your allergies or make the room feel stuffy. I know a lot of people travel with these things, and if you go to a hotel room and it just kind of doesn't smell right, especially if you're kind of sensitive to older buildings, to mold, you can zap your, for lack of a better word, you can treat your room, you can zap it with this filter and kill those particles. It's pretty amazing. It's called the Pioneer Smart Point Air Treatment System. Yeah, it's also effective against wildfire smoke, which I know a lot of people are dealing with right now, as well as ridding the air of chemical pollutants that we don't think about, such as paint, vinyl, and other chemicals that are released in the air when you bring something new into your home. You can go to bioactivenutrients.com MTA and save up to $100 with the code MTA. That's bioactivenutrients.com forward slash MTA and look for the Pioneer Smart Point Air Treatment System. So how did you get to the point where you'd run two marathons and then like, how did the idea of running a marathon on all seven continents take hold? Because everyone kind of has that key moment usually that they set a big goal like that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, going all the way back to the first marathon in Big Sur, it was actually at the expo for the, the Big Sur marathon. So I had not even started my first marathon and I was walking around the expo and there was a table for the Seven Continents Club and, you know, with brochures and stuff. And I, I looked at it and I was like, wow, running a marathon on all seven continents. That sounds really cool. And of course, Antarctica is the one that pops up like, wow, Antarctica. Uh, and I think that was one of the big draws. I was like, that sounds crazy, but how can I not do it now that the idea has appeared, you know? <laughs> uh, so so it was really, you know, getting that idea at the expo. And a couple of days later, as the race started, I had already decided I was going to do it. So I hadn't even run my first marathon and I knew I was going to do all seven. So uh, that was how that idea landed. Well, it sounds like you're a person who really was used to thinking big and pursuing big dreams. I mean, you know, you were pursuing being an astronaut and you can't really necessarily play it safe and you just have to kind of go all in. So it sounds like that really dovetailed nicely with that part of your personality and your drive. It sure did. Yes, definitely. So with the Seven Continents Club, is it the same organization or travel agency that organizes all the races or do you uh, kind of go a la carte? I, I did four of them with, I was Marathon Tours and Travel, which is uh, who I ran with. Uh, and there's, it sounds, it seems like there's a couple different seven continents clubs around the world, but, um, but I did mine with Marathon Tours and Travel. Uh, so I ran four with them. Obviously Big Sur was a little easier. I did that just on my own. Uh, and then the next one after Big Sur, I ran in Athens, uh, the original marathon from the plain of Marathon to Athens. Mm. Uh, and that one I did with a tour group, but it wasn't Marathon Tours and Travel. I actually went with uh, Jeff Galloway's group. Jeff Galloway had been uh, leading you know, groups to go to the Athens Marathon year after year, and I joined his group that year. Uh, so that was my next one. Okay, so now that we got to hear about that marathon, uh, that's actually one of the things I like to do is go run the Athens Marathon. So did it live up to all the hype or what? Sure did. I mean, I... <laughs> I just, I love the camaraderie of the run. So it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where you are. You know, you're kind of joking and talking with random people along the way and people wear funny shirts, um, you know, and there's, you know, just married couples and dear God, please let there be someone behind me to read this, you know, kind of shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that one, it was actually kind of rainy um, and kind of hilly up and down, but you finish in the Athens, in the Olympic stadium, you know, the Olympic mm. rings are up there. And so coming in for the home stretch, in the presence of the Olympic rings. That was just really cool to feel the history, the history of the marathon, but just the history of Athens and just the world and, and being a part of that was really cool. Now you mentioned traveling with Jeff Galloway's group. Um, of course, he has the famous run walk method. Is that something that you've incorporated in all of your marathons? Yes, I so I'm definitely not fast. <laughs> I will cross the finish line eventually. But but run walk was really key for me. Um, because it, yeah, I would I would typically do like a run for five minutes, walk for a minute. And sometimes it was much longer stretches of walking, particularly near the end of the marathons. But that really helped in my training it psychologically, I think it helps to just take a break and just exercise different muscles. So you're not just run, run, run the whole time. And I've never put the kind of pressure on myself like, oh, you can't walk at all. That just doesn't work for me. So uh, so yeah, run walk was perfect. So we always say that it's more fun at the back of the pack. And, you know, I'm sure you can attest to that being about the experience, the community, who you're running with. Was there ever a time in any of these races that you were worried, though, that you weren't going to make a cutoff? I know some of these races have specific cutoff times. Um, talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you stay in the moment, you know, when you are sort of worried about making it in time? Yeah. 
You know, great question. The The Great Wall Marathon was definitely that for me. Um, the Great Wall Marathon had a time limit for 21 miles. And then for the finish, it was an eight hour time limit to finish the whole race. And there were a lot of complicating factors. I, I had actually kind of had a perceived injury with my foot. So I hadn't run in six weeks before the wall. And then my GPS watch died and I hadn't brought my charger. So I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to time my run walk breaks. So I was going into it already a little bit nervous. Uh, and it's the Great Wall. And it's kind of crazy terrain and not the whole race isn't on the wall, but enough of it is and, and the, the stairs and the elevation and it's just pretty crazy. So interestingly, I found what helped me keep going was other people uh, and the camaraderie. So there was actually a woman in my tour group who was an Ironman triathlete. She had done the, uh, you know, a complete Ironman and she volunteered to run with me and pace me for 21 miles. So she got me to the 21 mile mark. Hmm. And of course she was feeling awesome. She's a really good, like way better shape. So she took off and ran at her own pace the rest of the time. And um, I was just, phew, at least, you know, I got past that point. But I was, I was still going pretty slow and I wasn't feeling all that great. Uh, but I eventually actually came upon someone else in our tour group and, and he had really just kind of given up. He was sitting on the steps and he said, they can come pick me up tomorrow. Mm. And I couldn't leave him there. So I just sat down next to him and, and ch we chatted for a little bit. And I was like, okay, how about if we just walk up 10 steps? Uh, and which is what I had actually been doing on my own. Um, and so, so we walked up, we walked up 10 steps and sat down again, we walked up 10 more steps and sat down again. And so it was a really cool reversal where someone else had gotten me through the first 21 miles. I was able to turn around and help someone else cross the finish line. And we ended up crossing the finish line hand in hand, uh, with seven minutes to spare. I found that in those moments when you're afraid it's, you're not going to finish, um, it's really humanity and compassion that, that bring you through and, and doing it together, teamwork and camaraderie. And probably going through that struggle made that race so much, you know, such a better memory, so much more valuable. You learn so much more in the struggle. Although none of us were like, yes, sign me up for the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. The struggle actually does make it more memorable. And when I think back on them, that one always stands out. You know, it took me the very longest to finish. And yet it was the most rewarding in terms of, of humanity. How many miles were actually on the wall? I think that it was six kilometers on the wall, I think. And we did it twice. So it was like out and back. Hmm. Um, so, so it, in the end, it was not a huge section that was on the wall, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was enough. And by, by the end of it, by the time I had gotten to my other teammate from, from my group there, it really just, people were littered all over the wall. They were just, some people were climbing up with arms and, you know, legs. And some people were just sort of draped over the wall, just try resting or just, oh, I can't keep going. So, uh, and the vendors ran out of water, the, the race, the aid oh, stations man. ran out of water. So. Um, it was pretty intense. That's Angie's living nightmare. <laughs> Running, out, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Running out of water. I'm all for challenging myself, but there better be water. <laughs> Me too. I'm a huge water drinker. <laughs> Me too. So I'm imagining that the marathon in Antarctica was probably the biggest logistical challenge, probably the biggest financial investment. And I know there's always unknown weather situations that you face while going to that continent. Kind of talk us through that whole experience. I mean, we've never, ever experienced that before. And I'm sure most of our listeners haven't either. Yes, that was pretty amazing. That one I was one of the ones I did with Marathon Tours and Travel. And that was a that particular race was organized by Marathon Tours and Travel. So everybody on the trip was was with them. And so what we did was we actually started in South America. We started in Buenos Aires, then flew down to Ushuaia at the very tip of South America and, and then took a ship 
from uh, across the Drake Passage down to Antarctica. Um, and so we were in the Antarctic Peninsula and they actually had in the past, they told us this horror story that one year the, the conditions were so bad they couldn't land and they ran the marathon on the ship, mm. which is like 0.1 mile, you know, around the deck and you're running <laughs> a marathon around and around and around. I can't, I cannot even imagine. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So we thankfully did not have to do that. But yeah, it was, the conditions there were also pretty intense. It Surprisingly, it was warmer than I expected. It was about 40 degrees, but it was about 40 mile an hour wind and it was raining and it was rocky and it was muddy. And so we definitely felt like we'd run in Antarctica by, by the end of it. So, uh, and it, we were there at the end of, of February, which is kind of the end of their summer. So about as warm as it's going to be. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we did the marathon on King George Island, which is uh, an island that has a lot of different international bases. So we started in Russia and we ran to China and Chile and Uruguay. And uh, so, mm. you know, kind of hit a lot of countries along the way, which was which was kind of fun. And then and then after that, we actually just did touring around Antarctica. You know, we saw the penguins and the icebergs and did all that fun stuff. So we were actually blessed with the weather on the way across the Drake Passage. It was pretty calm on the way back. It was much more rolling. And we had, you know, furniture sliding across the room and, and we had to use, you know, paper cups at dinner because you couldn't use the glassware and things like that. So so we definitely had our share of crazy conditions, but it was a lot of fun. So can you give us like a ballpark of what it costs to go run a marathon in Antarctica? <laughs> I could tell you how much it cost me. Okay. Um, mine, uh, and this was 2011. Um, I believe it was like six to 7,000. Um, I believe the ones at the South Pole are more, like maybe starting at around 10. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, so that I, again, not not sure of um, off the top of my head, but um, but that was, as you said earlier, that was of all the marathons, my biggest investment um, hmm. for, for the specific trip. Yeah. And it was also the longest one. I was gone for about 16 days. You know, you cross the passage and do all that. So there's a lot of additional time built in for being in South America. And then you're on the ship and then you're, yeah. you know, if, for something like Athens, you can be gone for five days. You know, you just fly there and you do the run and you come back. And but but yes, it was pretty involved. But it was truly a once in a lifetime experience. Yeah. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, I think if you're going to invest that amount of money, then you know you need to soak up and be there as long as possible. <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought about these people who do the seven continents, seven days. It's like. No, I want to see these people and get amazing pictures like you were able to get, which led to your project later on. So, yeah, I think that's that was a smart way to go for sure. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the other continents that we haven't talked about yet. We're not necessarily going in order, but... Uh... Let's see, we haven't talked about Africa yet. So, yes, there was uh, Africa. I did the Safaricom in Kenya, which was actually run in a game park, wow. <laughs> which was pretty cool. Safaricom. That's one I had not heard of. Um, not that I've heard of everything, but... So Safaricom, it's named that uh, Safaricom is the cell network that's that's there. So uh, okay. it's a cell network that sponsors a race also with a, or a conservation organization called Tusk Trust. So they they kind of put it on. And so what we did there, let's see. So we, we arrived in Nairobi in Kenya, and then we actually went to um, the Aberdare, which was a, a sort of a game preserve and just a, a wildlife preserve uh, in, in one part of the part of the country and stayed there for a few days and then actually went to the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy, 
which was where the race was run. So Aberdare was more kind of in the jungle, like trees and forest and more green than maybe you would expect. And then going to Lewa, we crossed the equator actually on the way. So it's the first time I'd been across the equator, like on land, there was a sign and, you know, we all mm. stood under the sign and took pictures, so touristy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we got to, to Lewa and I mean, <laughs> it basically felt like being in the Lion King, you know, it's, it's just kind of... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Looks like that, you know, when you see all the animals. And uh, so we did some game drives and things like that. And and then the race was through the park. They had helicopters and stuff like that that were out, you know, making sure that there were no big game around around the race. So we were not, mm. you know, in danger or anything. And I I mean, I don't think the animals like people anyway. So, I mean, there are a whole bunch of people running by They're They're going to go the other direction. So mm-hmm. um, but we got to see the animals on other on other outings. Um, cool. But, yeah, that one was that one was a two lap course. Uh, and and that that one it got progressively harder for me like the first lap was fine and then the second lap took maybe twice as long as the first lap for me so uh so it definitely took me a while to finish that one but it was it was really cool i think one of my favorite memories from there was actually being at a point where i couldn't see anyone ahead of me and i couldn't see anyone behind me and so i was just all alone out on the savannah yeah. and and it was a really cool feeling of just being present on the earth i would have started singing paul simon songs to entertain myself <laughs> She's talking about being present, not distracting yourself. (laughs) I think during that race, I would have been tempted just to walk the whole thing. So I didn't inadvertently trigger some animals like chase impulse. (laughs) Right. Well, we joked that it was the perfect race for anyone who's ever said they will only run if something is chasing them. So (laughs) I don't know if we've if you've already said this, but what were your responsibilities in the Air Force during this time? Uh, during that time, I was finishing up my PhD, actually. So I was still um, still at school at the Naval Postgraduate School. Okay. And what do you do now? So now I am actually a life coach and I, I'm still in, I'm still a reservist in the Air Force. So okay. I actually made the big switch in 2015, from which was all part of the recovery process from the astronaut dream. I, mm. I realized at, at some point that I didn't actually have specific Air Force goals. I mean, I loved my time in the Air Force and wouldn't trade it for anything. But where I was, you know, a couple years after the astronaut thing just kind of wasn't really lighting me up. But what did light me up was the people that I worked with and Mm -hmm. and just really getting to know the people. And I realized that leadership and professional development was actually more my passion than the engineering side of the house. So uh, so I actually switched to the reserve in 2015 and, and started teaching leadership and professional development. So I still do that on the Air Force side. And then when I'm not doing that, um, the rest of the time, I have my own business uh, as a coach. And, oh, cool. uh, and I've been doing a lot of writing, obviously, and uh, just helping people, other people become more of their authentic selves, because that's what really lights me up is, is helping other people just find their own passions and find their own way and their own uh what lights them up in in the world so perfect okay what marathon can we ask you about next let's see i'm looking on my wall here because i have all my collages next to me um we haven't talked about south america and uh easter island or rapa nui i've always wanted to go to easter island so I did the Rapa Nui Marathon, um, which uh, again, Rapa Nui is the the indigenous term for for Easter Island, and everyone knows that. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we started there in Santiago, Chile, and you know it's funny they say that okay, probably a lot of islands claim this that to be the most remote island anywhere, and I was so surprised. It actually took us five hours to fly from Santiago to the island. It's, it's way like out there, yeah, literally in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean, um, and it's really small. You got to wonder, how do the people get there back in the day? <laughs> Boat 
boats. I don't know. I don't even know how they find it. You know, the the Polynesian people must were really good navigators. You know, they say so. They found all these little islands and um, yeah. So there's actually uh, the island is made up of uh, it's kind of a triangular shape and there's a volcano in each corner. Wow. So the moai, which is what the statues are called, um, are actually made out of the volcanic rock um, from the island. Um, now some of them have like big hats um, or pukau is what they're called and they're actually made from a different volcanic quarry so they they made them i mean out of different kinds of stone and and so we heard all the you know how did they get to where they were you know there were some of the legends said that they walked there that but but people have actually said well that that could mean actually that they tied ropes around them and sort of like ooched them along upright you know yeah. like you would try to like ooch a refrigerator or something like that you know um Interesting. so jury's out you know obviously there's a lot of theories but it was it was pretty cool uh to see those impressive statues so i've seen one in the british museum but to see him on the island you see him like you saw the pretty impressive sight these things are huge right they are. They are way taller. I mean, there was one of the little hats um, was on the ground, and and that was as tall as I was. Um, but the the moai themselves, they also they range in height, but I mean, they're all way taller than we are. Uh, but there were actually very few people in that race. So I think there were about thirty five people in, in the race. So so I this one was really funny for me because I I actually won because I won my I won my age and gender category because I was the only person in my age and gender category. All right. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> so, yeah. Yay. Um, but but it was it also gave me the perspective, you know, uh, for all the races, my biggest thing was that the run itself is the win. So it's really not mm-hmm. about winning and getting the the medal. It's really about again like we talked about earlier the experience. So yeah. And that's the reason why I love to travel is to collect experiences. And we've always just liked to invest in going places because uh, those experiences just make, I think, a person more interesting. You have all these interesting stories you can tell, especially if you like to one-up people with your stories like I do. I thought you were going to say <laughs> something else there. <laughs> yeah, I think it, like you're talking about, it's about how you can connect with other people along the way. And it also reminds you, sometimes we tend to think that our own personal experiences loom so large. And you realize when you travel, the world is not about you. And I think it helps the person become more present in the moment because you're not spinning in the future or the past. You can be like, wow, I'm here now enjoying this, this beauty, even if I feel outside of my comfort zone. Is that kind of what you've experienced? Yes, I love that, Angie. It really is. There's a there's a beautiful phrase in the movie Contact, um, one of my favorite movies, uh, where she says, you know, how how small and insignificant and how rare and precious we all are. Uh, And and Mm. I think you really get a feel for that when you travel. All right. So let's travel to the next continent. Um, I think we might just have Australia left, huh? We do, yes. Um, Australia is the last one. And this one was pretty cool. This was the Solar Eclipse Marathon. So it was actually in conjunction with a total solar eclipse in Port Douglas, which is where uh, the Great Barrier Reef is. Um, That's kind of the jumping off point for the Great Barrier Reef. And that's up in the north, Uh, right? In the north, yeah. And so I had actually, or I had heard about this solar eclipse that it was coming. One of my friends was like, hey, there's a, there's a solar eclipse in Australia. We should go. I'm like, yeah, we should totally go. We, should, we need to find some kind of excuse. And, and here <laughs> comes the marathon. Total, totally good excuse. So what, the way it worked was the solar eclipse was about 6.15 in the morning. So we all, we all kind of gathered at the starting point with our solar eclipse glasses and watched the eclipse. And then when the, the starting gun was when the sun's rays first came back out from behind the moon. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> So what made that point, uh, that place, especially interesting for, for viewing an eclipse? 
Well, so you um, the, when a total solar eclipse comes, it's actually usually a pretty narrow path where you can see it. Um, first of all, it has to be either like dawn or dawn. Well, it has to be like while well, the sun is out. Right? You, can't, yeah. you can't see it at nighttime. You know, so the, and the conditions have to be just right. When a solar eclipse happens, a lot of people get a partial solar eclipse, but there's a narrow band that gets the total just because of the way the earth and the sun uh, and, the, and the moon all line up. And of course, they know these things far in advance. So you can like see the paths that they um, that they project. And so I guess somebody decided, hey, let's do a marathon with the solar eclipse and hmm. and so <laughs> that was a good idea uh so so this particular um place we were like on a, on a beach that uh, was where the start starting place of the course so it was nice because the the sun was rising kind of over the water so there's not trees in the way or anything like that so uh and now it did it did get a little cloudy and at the actual moment of totality it was behind the clouds so usually in a, in a total solar eclipse you can see the corona um like the sun's corona around around the moon wow. um which is which people get really i was gonna say stellar photos of haha no pun intended um, <laughs> but but so so we didn't actually see that part because it was cloudy but it was amazing it literally got dark completely dark wow um and then what really amazed me was how little light it took to just light up like day again like it, it really just took hmm. just a tiny little sliver and it was like day again so it wasn't like a sunrise it was just it was dark and then it was light um, and so it really felt like let there be light. And yeah. to me, that also becomes kind of metaphorical that, you know, no matter how dark it gets, it just takes a little tiny sliver of light to, you know, transform the darkness. Um, so I think especially for today's world, that's maybe a message that we can all live by. <laughs> OK, now I have to come in with this this comment. What bad luck? <laughs> Sorry, because that was a really positive thought. But what bad luck that the clouds happen to obscure the view right at the at the opportune moment? Yes, you know, that is that is a risk anytime you go for a solar eclipse. You know, people travel all over to see solar solar eclipses, especially total ones. And you know, luck at the draw. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I would say eclipse fanatics kind of like have all the conditions to look out for, but at the end of the day, you know that it being obscured by clouds is a possibility. And I would say it was a little disappointing, but just the again, the experience made it totally worthwhile. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, even as you were talking about how we can pursue these goals and dreams that we have, we can give everything that we have in pursuit of that, but still we cannot control circumstances, other people's decisions. There's so much about life that we can't control or even shouldn't try to control. And so I think that is kind of an illustration of how the conditions were all aligned for it to be perfect, but then there's a cloud. Mm -hmm. And you still chose to look for that ray of light that lit up the darkness. And yeah, I think that's a really important message for people to hold on to because, you know, sometimes we think, oh, that person is so lucky, like everything is lined up for them. Um, but we don't see the clouds that obscure what's going on in their life, too. Um, you know, we kind of see people's highlight reels and we <laughs> tend to focus on how hard things are for us. Um, you know, it's kind of that what your experience was with having to give up your dream of being an astronaut. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's what well, you said, we can't control anyone else. All we can control is how we respond to situations. And, you know, maybe our first response is disappointment or freak out or, you know, whatever. But it's what we do next, you know, that, that we can control. So we can choose to stay and, and, and be bitter. We can choose to stay in 
anger or rage or whatever, um, or we can choose to to tell a new story. And and so I think that with uh, with the astronaut thing, with the cloud, you know, all of that has been a practice. You know, and it and it you know doesn't necessarily happen automatically. You do have to actually practice it. Uh, but but with practice, it gets easier. So finding the reframe or finding the the more uh, uplifting or abundant way. And it's not it's not like just you know turn a frown upside down. It's not superficial. It is actually finding uh, a new story that helps move you forward and that and that raises your energy and your and your vibration and help and that that kind of reframing also helps the world you know yeah so yeah that's a huge piece of it I think it's interesting how all of our interests can kind of coincide I mean your interest in photography and doing marathons and you know, just your unique way of looking at the world led to the project you were able to do with running the world book. So what was it like to bring that project together? That was actually quite an amazing experience. Uh, I will say when I first started, I was actually trying to write a book about leadership. And this was this was actually a couple years ago in 2019. I was trying to write a book about leadership and struggling thinking i mean everyone and their dog has written a book about leadership what is my unique angle going to be i don't know i mean what am i going to say that nobody you know that nobody said before uh and you know i was casting about struggling and and in fact i finally just gave up i was like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what my soul work is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And literally it was one of these like voice from the sky kind of moments. Like the next idea I had was, oh, what do I actually already have? Coffee table book. I already had my marathon experiences. I already had my photos. I had made online albums for my friends. And, you know, I realized when I went back through all my files and my emails and stuff, I had had 10 years ago friends telling me, you know, you have a really good photographic eye. And, you know, if that whole science thing doesn't work out, maybe, you know, at least you have a backup plan. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, where was I back then? You know, but I obviously had to get to where I was. It, it just became clear that that's what I, like that was the book that wanted to be created. And it was one of these magical, you know, universe tells you what to do and and the work itself called to be done. And mm. And so I was like, okay, sign me up. So I started working on it. And I will say actually about uh, just a few weeks later, I know about a month later, my mom passed away. Uh, so that was, you know, sort of a didn't work on it for a while after that. But um, when I when I kind of came back to it, I had even more life experience and perspective. And it just started to, to take shape in a really beautiful way. Um, and, and it was really actually upon recognizing that this story was was on the verge of being created that I when I looked back and realized how applicable it was to life. So a lot of these life lessons and epiphanies and lessons I learned from it really came about as I was writing the book. Um, hmm. And it was just like, wow, exploding brain emoji, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an emoji I haven't used in a while. I need to use that one again. <laughs> we'll, put it with, we'll put it with this episode. <laughs> yeah, here we go. So as a life coach, do you have any other words of advice for people trying to find their new story or their soul work? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I truly believe that you don't need to run a marathon on all seven continents to have an epic life. Um, you mm -hmm. are already powerful, special, and unique. You were born to feel fulfilled and fired up. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you're here to make a difference, not by what you do, but by being you. So it's really not about the work you pursue or the job. It's showing you showing up as you and all your full potential and seeing where that leads you. So yeah. that's, your, that's your real soul work is being yourself. Awesome. Well, people want to find out more about you and about the book, Running the World. Where can we send them? Well, you can go to my website, resilienceactually.com. And to find the book, it's resilienceactually.com slash running the world. 
All right. Well, it's been great talking to you, Melissa. Thanks for joining us on the MTA podcast and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Trevor and Angie. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks to our friends at the VCU Health Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia for sponsoring the podcast. This race takes place November 13th. They also have a half marathon called the CarMax Richmond Half Marathon and the Leon's Partners 8K. They provide amazing course support. There's great fall scenery that time of year. Awesome finisher swag. You can run through scenic sections of Richmond, including the beautiful James River. And it's also a top 25 Boston qualifier. It's mostly flat, a little bit of rolling hills. But it's great for first timers. And best of all, there's a nice downhill finish right on the riverfront. Yeah, I always hate when they put a hill right at the end. (laughs) Unless it's a downhill, right? (laughs) That's right. The VCU Health Richmond Marathon organizers know the running community is resilient and that your desire to cross a finish line remains strong. And they've really proven their ability to create an experience that is tailor-made to fit the needs of all runners. You can be part of America's friendliest marathon by visiting richmondmarathon.org to register now. And be sure to beat the September 16th price increase to save money while you're at it. Just go to richmondmarathon.org. Come discover the River City and cross the finish line this November. All right. Well, hope you enjoyed that conversation. Big thanks to Melissa for joining us on the podcast. You know, something she said that I really liked, Angie, I wrote it down, is when she first heard of the Seven Continents Club, she said, it sounded crazy, but how can I not do it now that the idea has appeared? Yeah. Ideas just kind of appear, opportunities that just resonate with you. A lot of ideas don't appeal, so you know we don't take action, but sometimes just things appear and you got to decide, what do I have to lose if I go for it? Yeah, that's right. Sometimes we can spend all this time trying to talk ourselves out of big challenges, like all the reasons why we can't or why we shouldn't. But, you know, maybe a better way would be to lean into it and think, how can I accomplish this? Exactly. Instead of saying, I can't afford it, how can I afford it? (laughs) That's right. I also liked her um, takeaways from rocket science. And I'll, I'll go over those again really quick. She said, rocket science and marathon training are alike because you're going from where you are to where you want to be. Number two, you have to acknowledge progress and adjust your course as necessary. And number three, you got to let go to lift off. So just let go. Start running. (laughs) (laughs) Let go of the reasons why you can't and keep pursuing your goals. All right. So now we have an awesome question sent in from a listener about intermittent fasting. And boy, we get this question quite a bit. So we're excited to have Angelo Poli on the podcast again from MetPro. He is an expert on the body's metabolism and helping runners and just taking a look at all of the trends and the diets and stuff that you hear about different nutritional approaches and synthesizing them. So I hope you enjoy this little Q&A segment here with Angelo Poli. Let's go ahead and jump in. This question comes from Romilia, and she says, how does intermittent fasting fit into a marathon training program? Is this something that can be beneficial or detrimental to peak event performance and optimal training? Yeah, we actually have been getting a lot of questions lately about intermittent fasting, so glad we have a chance to ask you about this. Absolutely. So I've been there for all the trends, (laughs) and 
they all have a scientific element. But, you know, I mean, it was in the late 80s and 90s. It was, it was all about calorie control, which kind of gave way to the low fat thing. And then it was the low carb thing. And then it was the all natural thing, which I really liked. And then vegan and vegetarian. Then it swung all the way the other way, paleo and ketogenic. And now the most common thing that I'm asked about is what about intermittent fasting? Hmm. And my, my answer is the same as it was to all the other kind of things that became hot is they all have science behind them. It's a matter of understanding the tool and how it works with your physiology. Um, so I will say this, a marathon runner is not the first person I would think of when I'm correlating to that particular tool. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have clients that don't implement a measure of it. But here's the basics that you, you want to be aware of. Some people will say that they're intermittent fasting for digestive health. And if you take a day where you're giving your, your digestive system a rest, great. And anybody can do that regardless of their sport. Truth be told, 98% of people who ask me about it may mention that, but actually what they simply want is a way to lose weight. And so understand the mechanic behind intermittent fasting. Yes, there is some science around the window and the timing of the meals. That is on my list of tools you can implement, but it's very much secondary. If you're doing intermittent fasting and losing weight, it is because you've reduced your calorie intake or your carbohydrate intake. Maybe the effect is heightened because of the window you're eating within. But I promise you, if you eat more calories and carbohydrates, even within that window, it's not going to have the same effect. So now as a runner, what's optimal for you? Anything is possible. Anything is possible. But optimal for you is I want you to fuel for performance with more calories, more carbohydrates when possible. That's for two reasons. One, to speed your metabolism. So if we do enter a fat burning cycle, your body's in the best position to do so. And two, because generally speaking, more fuel equals more performance, more recovery, more opportunity to see yourself excel. So generally, we're going to look at the timing of your runs, and we're going to want you to have fuel before, fuel after, fuel throughout the day. Otherwise, what could happen is you're stuck eating a giant meal all at once or one or two really big meals, and particularly for endurance athletes, digestive stress becomes an issue. You ever try and do a long run on a full stomach? It just doesn't work particularly well. And you're not the only ones. When I have like competitive athletes on race day, they have to eat just really small meals at a time because of nerves. They're really nervous going into any sport. This is across the board. So I have to give them small throughout the day. That said, here's how you can implement some measure of cyclical fasting. Figure out what time of day you're going to do your have your greatest effort and then position more of your fuel at that time of day. All things being equal, go lighter the beginning of your day, but towards the end of your day. Because then if you are going to go into a fasting cycle, let's let it be fasting going into you resting, not the other way around not resting, going into activity, fasted, where now you're not going to have as much fuel, which could lead to having to over-supplement during your runs. 
So there are some ways. There's a lot of people that try and give themselves two or three hours before bed of not eating. That's a great strategy that even athletes can implement if they're running earlier in the day. A lot of people will taper their carbohydrates with the majority of their carbs being at breakfast and lunch and then tapering from mid-afternoon snack on. That's a great way of implementing a level of intermittent fasting using the same mechanic but sidestepping some of the potential pitfalls associated with it. I was just going to say that um, I feel like sometimes the intermittent fasting windows tend to be like skipping breakfast and maybe it comes in at noon or something. And so if a person trains in the morning, I feel like they are not replenishing from that effort and it can cause more stress on their body, especially women of childbearing age. And that can actually raise cortisol levels over time, which destabilizes hormones. So it can kind of, you know, be a double edged sword. You have to use it very, very carefully if you're in specific groups of, you know, how your metabolism is responding. That, that's right. And like I said, I don't view any strategy as good or bad. It's just a matter of application. In fact, I have a client that I have him implement a measure of intermittent fasting. But there's a very good reason why. So in his case, he's just one of those people with a ravenous appetite. He was waking up at 530 in the morning, eating breakfast, training, needing to eat a snack, a second snack, and then lunch, and then normal rest of his day. And he just had this ravenous appetite. I asked him, and not everybody can do this, but in this case, uh, he wasn't seeing the weight loss he wanted. So we purposefully moved his training to right after lunch, early afternoon. And so because of that, he got to sleep in a little bit more in the morning. We bumped his breakfast back. We had him go a little lighter first half of the day. And in his case, that kind of fasting window worked out. But see, there was a very specific strategy and it allowed us to strategically control his caloric content in his case, whereas macronutrient ratios, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but most people are a little confused because there's so many different, you hear intermittent fasting, well, what is that? Is that just not eating breakfast? Is that only eating, you know, between 10 and 6 o'clock at night? Is it not eating on Tuesdays and Fridays? There's a lot of different ways to implement it. So the, the key is you really want to know what's going to work with your body uh, and understand the major facets that are going to trigger. In this case, if we're talking about fat loss, it's going to be some level of caloric restriction, carbohydrate reduction, or combination of macronutrient ratios that are going to advantage, put you in a position for fat loss. And those you can accomplish without going to extremes. Perfect. All right. So I hope that was helpful. Thanks to Angelo for joining us again. MetPro has been a big help to us. If you want to talk to one of their nutrition coaches, it's a totally free phone call. Just go to metpro.co forward slash MTA. Yes, I've been working with Coach Natalie, one of their amazing coaches. It's been a fantastic experience. So if you feel like working with a coach would be a good fit for you, jump in right now. You can save $500 using our referral code. So head over to metpro.co forward slash MTA and get started. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for all the nice reviews in iTunes, by the way, those five-star reviews. Someone recommended that we post links in the show notes that appear right there on your phone because sometimes you're out running and you hear about something and you can't remember later what the URL was. Right. Maybe you didn't want to like go dig around for it on our website. So uh, you will notice now, if you go on your phone where our episodes are, 
there's a description, of course, of each episode, but now there are links that we share on the podcast that are right there on your phone. Uh, should be hyperlinked, so it'll be easier for you to, to get back to them if you want. Until next time, always remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way. Go away.